What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? What? Just say no. I won't say no. Just say no. Wait, Claudia. Claudia. We never objected to seeing Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia again, but suddenly here we are and it's been 20 years. You might even say we wised up, Josh. Melora Walters and John C. Riley in that scene from Anderson's epic ensemble drama. This week on the show, we revisit Magnolia as part of our 9 from 99 series celebrating one of the best movie years ever. We'll also share some thoughts on a few other recent releases. Jojo Rabbit, David Michaud's Henry V adaptation, The King, and The Report starring Adam Driver. All that and more. Even more? Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We head back to 1999. Josh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, our 9 from 99 subject this week, coming off our split take on Best Picture winner American Beauty about a month ago. That maybe makes it seem like we were more divergent on that film than we really were, though I did ultimately have a positive take on that Sam Mendes movie. Is Magnolia one, Josh, that you have seen since 99 before this rewatch? I've revisited plenty of scenes, probably for some top five lists we've done, but no, I have not watched it in its entirety. I have sat here for 20 years very uncomfortably with my three out of four star 1999 (laughs) review. Well, you haven't sat here for all 20 of those years. No, no, no. Just, you know, existentially. (laughs) We'll also spend a few minutes on Taika Waititi's World War II-era satire, Jojo Rabbit, and I caught up with two other films, The Report and The King. I will be recommending one of those two films. Ooh, a tease. Yeah. Our podcast listeners will also hear us wrap up our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon with The Umbrellas. It's our marathon ending best of awards. A reminder quickly to our radio listeners that the podcast version of the show is usually quite a bit longer, and if you're curious to check that out you can find that wherever you get your podcasts or listen at filmspotting.net first up was paul thomas anderson already a master filmmaker in 1999 or was he still warming up with this ambitious melodrama there is the story of a boy genius thomas kid jean the peaceful clamoyer and the game show host jimmy gator live from burbank california first question for 25 this French playwright and actor joined the Bajar troupe of actors. And the ex-boy genius. I'm Chris Donny Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son. What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. I took care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him, do you understand? There's no one else. No one else! The caretaker. Hello! I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. And there is the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. Love you too. And the daughter. I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And the police officer in love. I'm Officer Jim Curring. My life is very stressful, and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving. So if you are this person, And this will all make sense in the end. Unlike Paul Thomas Anderson, sadly, my creativity couldn't match my ambition this week. I started learning the guitar chords 
and rewriting the lyrics to Amy Mann's Wise Up before I realized I just wasn't going to be able to pull off singing your setup. Oh, wow. That's no joke. I started. Oh, don't tease me it like It could have been great. <laughs> so I'm taking an easier route instead, one already paved for me. You asked whether PTA was already a master filmmaker in 99 or if he was still warming up with Magnolia. And an AV Club piece from August described the film as, quote, exactly the kind of thing an artsy kid with all the feelings would write. It's also the kind of thing that begs for the red pen, end quote. And earlier this week in the Film Spotting newsletter, our producer Sam took a similar tack, comparing PTA's sprawling, intense day in the life of several somewhat randomly connected Southern Californians to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It's become conventional wisdom, according to Sam, to consider the five or so years prior to 2007's There Will Be Blood as a, quote, sort of gestation period where Paul Thomas Anderson transformed from a wonder kind with more talent than wisdom, eager to show off how thoroughly he's absorbed the lessons of his idols to an artist of mature genius, content to use his outsized talents to more enigmatic and subtle ends. End quote. He then confesses, I was guilty of this kind of thinking myself before revisiting Magnolia. It definitely struck me as the work of a younger artist, but in the same way that Sgt. Pepper's is the work of young artists. Both are try-anything-slash-everything works of boundless artistic imagination and formal mastery, but they are also works of great beauty, empathy, and understanding. You know, masterpieces. So a little bit of that classic Sam Van Hogren Van Perbole in there for you. I'm going to propose that you too, Josh, were guilty of such thinking coming into this revisit. The receipts include your three out of four star blurb, presumably written back in 99. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's pulled from that. Okay. In which you call Magnolia another great imitation of a great movie from writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson, and you cite Altman's Nashville and Shortcuts as Magnolia's prime influences. You're complimentary, to be sure, but the imitation implication suggests a still relatively unformed artist, a position supported by your letterboxed ranking of PTA's films. I want to state clearly that, at least according to my research, you have not actually given a negative review to any Paul Thomas Anderson movie, but... That would be correct. You do have, in last place... His debut, Hard Eight, or Sydney, third from the bottom, his second and breakout feature, Boogie Nights, and in between those two is the film we're discussing, Magnolia. His three earliest works are the ones you fancy the least. So, are you sticking to this narrative, or are you ready to revise the list? Is PTA's tale of wounded children, despicable patriarchs, and their collaterally damaged caretakers a more profound, developed piece of art than you initially gave it credit for? And did any of the performances surprise you on this rewatch? In your blurb, you rightfully praise John C. Riley's do-gooder policeman Jim Curring, Philip Seymour Hoffman's emotional hospice attendant Phil Parma, and Tom Cruise's malevolently charismatic seduce-and-destroy instructor Frank T.J. Mackey, a role that earned him a Best Supporting Oscar nomination. But you were not a fan of Julianne Moore's manic, adulterous wife Linda or William H. Macy as whiz kid Donnie Smith, who has so much love to give. Won't you give some of your love to Macy and to the artistry of PTA? Artistry that extends beyond bravura steady cam shots to non-diegetic ensemble sing-alongs and, of course, frogs falling from the sky. Or will you always think of Magnolia most fondly as the stepping stone to PTA's true masterpiece, his next film, Punch Drunk Love? Hmm. Yes, Punch Drunk Love is just so wonderful. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. Can't wait till we do the Sacred Cow review of that one. But I think this is going to be, I don't know that we've had a full-on mea culpa 
in the 9 from 99 series yet. I know positions have shifted a little a bit little. here and there. But who was this stingy bastard in 1999? <laughs> yes. Who, now mind you, again, this is what I was as, hoping for, as you've stated, so badly. three out of four stars, right. you know, positive review. Yeah. Um, but why, why did I get so focused on yeah. the things that held me back from it? Things Just wrote it off as an Altman we'll ripoff. talk about. No, no, no. Don't rephrase what you've already read. That's not exactly how I couched it. Notice the word great there. I, when I, I noticed it. When I wrote I great imitation. Um, so we're going to get to, you know, how I feel about some of those things I pointed out before. But what was with me that that's where I decided to go first. Yeah. Yes. You, this thing has up, so many <laughs> wonders to it. Um, the, the reservations I have pale in comparison to what this movie does well. And I would say of the performances, um, we'll circle back to that. But my biggest sin was probably in a longer print review that I wrote that I dragged out of some boxes, I didn't care for Melora Walters. Oh, and this watch, yeah. she just stunned me. Now, maybe those three characters have something in common we can get to. Maybe it's just a matter that I had not yet learned to appreciate melodrama. I described this as we led into this review as a melodrama, and I don't think that was a genre that I quite understood 20 years ago as well or appreciated hmm. as well as I do now. Maybe that had something to do with it. Um, but yeah, I way underrated this. Even if I think it's still, it's more of a masterwork in progress, I'll stand by that. But I'm not going to be as harsh as it sounds like that AV Club reappraisal was. Uh, it's still something absolutely wonderful as is. And I'm looking forward to spending some time on those positives. Yeah, me as well. I'd love to hear more because I'm also a big fan of this film. And I'm a big fan of all of Paul Thomas Anderson's films. Our rankings are very different, though ultimately the same because we're positive on all of them. And I think watching Magnolia again, I did realize that it would be very easy to be completely overwhelmed by it or exhilarated by the sheer audacity and the speed of it. It's three hours and eight minutes long. I had forgotten honestly, that it was that long. And, yeah, me too. And didn't quite believe the timer on the TV when it said it was that long. But especially that first 90 minutes before PTA deliberately slows the movie down. And I think there is a point where he deliberately slows it down. It's during Stanley's decision, the kid on TV who has told the world that he's not going to answer that question. He's standing his ground. He's not going to be forced into this position anymore. And similarly, all of the other characters at that moment are having kind of breakthrough personal moments. And that's where he really does PTA for better or worse, elongate that that entire section, I think. But up until that, with the music and the quick cuts that do connect all these storylines and characters, it just propels forward. And as we talk about the artistry of it and how bold it is and whether or not it reflects an immature artist at this point, I mean, I did listen to the interview PTA gave to Mark Maron on WTF a few years back, where he basically says in that interview, yeah, it probably should have had 20 minutes cut from it. I was hmm. a little bit out of control. I was overly eager and I wasn't going to be stopped. I was going to have my way on that movie. Who am I to argue with PTA? But that boldness going for a moment like we get with the frogs at the end, like the Amy Mann song Wise Up that we've referenced a few times, even the moment like the one with Jim and Claudia. So this is John C. Riley and Melora Walters who have met when he has been called to her house by neighbors who are complaining about the noise. So there's some disturbance there and they do end up making a connection and going out that evening. And they're two very 
broken people we see in that moment. But she has a line at one point where she says, now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? That does feel a little bit forced. And now in retrospect, I know that that is a line from an Amy Mann song and her songs are really the foundation of this entire soundtrack. But it was a line he fell in love with. And he said, I'm going to find a reason to get this into the movie. I'm going to go ahead and force it into the film. And you know what? I'm on board with all of that. But it is the intimate moments that make the film so much more for me than those pyrotechnics. And I will go back to that same scene with Jim and Claudia, where it's pretty early in the conversation. And she's saying to him, you're so good. You're so put together. You're a police officer. And PTA doesn't linger on John C. Riley's face, but he does keep the camera on him just long enough to see that flicker in his eyes where Riley is processing. Jim, the character he's playing, is processing so much in that flicker. He's recognizing that they're exactly the same, that they are broken, that in addition to that, he's somehow fooled her and that he's going to have to be completely honest with her like he isn't really with anybody else. And it's going to be uncomfortable and he's going to reveal just how truly pathetic he is to her. And that kind of, I guess, nakedness of it, of that emotion, of that vulnerability is really what I think makes Magnolia special. Can I tell you something? Yeah, of course. I'm really nervous that you're going to hate me soon. You're going to find stuff out about me and you're going to hate me. No, like what? What do you mean? You have so much, so many good things. And you seem so together. You're a police officer and you seem so straight and put together without any problems. I lost my gun today. What? I lost my gun today when I left you and I'm the laughing stock of a lot of people. I wanted to tell you. I wanted you to know and it's on my mind. And it makes me look like a fool. And I feel like a fool. That might be my favorite scene really? of the film on yeah. this rewatch. And you're right. It's relatively unshowy um, in terms of the, the camera work yeah. compared to a lot of what we get here. But the timing of Riley's response mm-hmm. when Officer Jim jumps in as she's talking about how she's messed up and he's so good. I and, lost and my just, gun today. I lost my gun today. And, and it's like he just he blurts it out because you're right. He's trying to keep up with her with what she's throwing at him. And then what he follows that up with. I'm looked down on and I know that. And he's he's it's it's as if he may have always known that, but he's maybe never admitted it to himself until this moment. Right. And her presence and her vulnerability is allowing him to do that. And then there is a bit of technical virtuosity when they kiss yes. and we get the camera push in on them. Right. I will have other things to say about other uses of camera pushes, the maybe 483 we get in the first 20 minutes. But this camera push is absolutely perfect. I also like about Officer Jim and Riley's performance how he's always talking. And the choice Anderson makes, there are a couple times in the movie where he's still talking and we see that, but we can't hear him. Right. One is when he's escorting Donnie back into the store to put back the money he stole from the that yeah. he's robbed from the And the, the safe. closing of the film and too, actually, in a more dramatic that, moment. That's what I was going to say. With yeah. Donnie, we see his mouth moving. We see Officer Jim's mouth moving and we just don't hear him. Um, but then, you're right, the final scene, we do kind of hear him. And if you listen in over the Amy Mann song, you can make out what he's saying, but it's not what the soundtrack prioritizes. No. So it's just a good way of it's keeping that reaction. Ca- to yes. Him. And keeping that character consistent. This is a guy who's just always talking, trying to say the right thing, 
being helpful more often than not, I think, but certainly trying. To I be. do love that quality about him. So the overarching thing that I enjoyed about this movie, seeing it a second time, and it sounds ridiculous not to have watched this movie a second time because it is so overwhelming. How how could I not have wanted to go back to it and yeah. try to figure out more and, and just piece more together? Yeah, more than any other film. And I'll just say real quick, we've watched some mind benders in this 1999 oh, yeah, series. For and sure. Looking back on The Matrix and The Sixth Sense and other films Being that John you want to try to make sense Fight of. Club. And this is the only one where I really feel like I needed to watch it a second time before discussing it or what would ultimately be a third time. For sure. And as wild as it all is, it all comes together in in at least one way. I'm not saying there's an answer or a clue, but it is considering this essential question, it seems to me. Basically, do things happen for a reason? Um, is everything, the phrase that's repeated often, a matter of chance? Mm-hmm. Or are things crucially connected? And I think from the structure of this film to the emotional beats that it hits to the frogs. Throw the frogs in here too. Yeah. Magnolia argues that, yes, we are connected. It may not be entirely sure how we're connected or why we're connected, but undoubtedly this is a movie that's pro-connection. It's anti-chaos. And I think this is why for all of its tragedy and, you know, there are some really awful things we learn that these some of these characters have suffered. Yes. I do find it strangely comforting. And I think this is maybe where the regret theme is important. And regret is also something that's mentioned a number of times Mm -hmm. by multiple characters when we learn about the awful things they've done that they should be regretful about. But if regret, basically, if everything is just a coincidence, then what's the point of regret, Mm -hmm. right? Why bother with regret if there's no sense of control here at all? And I think it's because the movie shows us that there is regret because we are connected by the things that are beyond our control, yes, by things that are greater than us, yes, but also by our choices, especially those choices in our relationships. So again, back to Officer Jim near the end when he says, can we forgive? That's the part, that's the Mm -hmm. tough part of the job. That's the tough part of walking down the street, right? right? That's one way to corral the chaos of the universe, to forgive. And that's a through line that was just so consistent for me in watching this movie that is probably one of the things I should have focused on and been less worried about whatever trick Anderson was pulling out of his bag to get there. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot of catharsis here and there are undoubtedly connections, not just being made with the camera, but if you really break it down, all nine or ten or however many characters there are in this film, we see that there is something that is linking them beyond just the thematics, but there's that thematic element as well. And in every sort of subplot, there is an element of a patriarch, as I mentioned, who has done terrible damage to a child. And I think one of the things that's kind of comforting about the ending of the film, even though, or a moment near the end of the film, even though it's not necessarily the moment of emotional breakthrough we would want on the part of the father. But when Stanley is able to go into his father and confront him with his father's mistreatment mm-hmm. of his abuse, maybe not on the scale of Melora Walter's character or of Frank, Tom Cruise's character at the hands of Jason Robards, but the fact that he's able to go in, you talk about that connection, it's as if even though he doesn't know those other people in the story that we're watching, we know the other people and we know what they've lived through and we know what they regret and feel at this point in their lives. And somehow he has absorbed that. And now he's able to go into his father and say, things need to be different. And there's hope. There's mm. hope in Stanley that somehow does, I think, make you feel better about everything at the end of this film. I like how that scene is played too, though, where his father doesn't 
he kind of ignores him and tells him to go to bed, yes. go back to bed twice. So yes. it doesn't play it for it like doesn't. this easy, no. cathartic moment. But you're right. You do get the sense that a choice has been made That's on it. Stanley. I part. think it's just in the act of confronting it. Yes. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more because when you talk about John C. Riley's character and him telling us in that kind of voiceover about how hard it is just dealing with forgiveness and getting through the day. That's a meta element in a film that has a lot of them. The fact that we hear him sometimes talking to us where it's almost as if there's a documentary crew in the car with him, but not really. But he's clearly just talking to himself. To himself. Yeah, that's how I understood it. But it very much feels like he's talking to us, the audience. And there is that moment where Phil Parma, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character and wow, talk about an amazing performance. Not a yeah. surprise, and yet somehow a surprise at just how good it was when he's talking on the phone and he's saying, this is that scene in the movie. Things mm. happen in the movie sometimes like this and I need you to now do it. I like that because it fits in with, I think, everything else is going on in the film. The moment when we are exiting Melora Walter's apartment and the camera quickly shows us the painting on the wall and the part that says, but it did happen, that's written on the painting. A note just for us, the viewer, the fact that most of the drama and suspense is built around a TV show, right? Mm -hmm. Characters watching it at different points. It's the game show and how that plays out. The fact that Earl Partridge, the Jason Robards character, is a TV producer who is the producer of that game show. And it makes you think of the Partridge family, of course. This is the dysfunctional version of the Partridge family. And all these characters tie back to him. And did you catch in the credits to the Henry Gibson character, the kind of character who's in the bar, putting on the airs of being this rich man of class who's talking to and kind of harassing Donnie, Donnie, uh, the William H. Macy character. His name is Thurston Howell which is the millionaire Mm, character from Gilligan's Island. So PTA is playing with all of this stuff, including all of the different references to Exodus 8-2 and the different uses of the numbers 8 and 2 that are in the film. The movie just dares you to repeatedly watch it, as we noted for these connections. But a couple more. Cruz unravels in front of a camera. His entire facade breaks down when he's questioned for a TV news profile of some kind. And isn't the whole film, in a way, despite how obviously cinematic it is, isn't it all kind of like a TV drama with all these different characters that you meet, whether Absolutely. it's a sitcom or whatever, or a melodrama, all these different storylines we're just I, kind of checking in on? I compared it, and not derisively, to a soap opera yeah. in my original print review. There is yeah. that element to it, but that all for me is building to a great moment and this idea of confrontation. And I want to talk about some of the surprises in the movie for you. If there were, as there have been throughout this series, certain moments where you just completely had forgotten about them in the 20 years that have passed. I kind of forgot about the Melinda Dillon character who plays Mm. Philip Baker Hall, Jimmy Gator, the TV host's wife. And I forgot about that scene completely that they have where he's come home from the taping. He has had some kind of attack. He's dying. And we've seen her up to this point be the doting wife. She has always been caring for him and worried about him. And you feel like she has possibly become content to accept a certain version of her life. She is married to this guy who's successful. She's had a good life and she loves this man, but she's been in denial about his past indiscretions, which he confesses to cheating on her multiple times. And she's probably been in denial about the sexual abuse of their daughter. And it's only when he unburdens himself of one of those anchors that's around his neck as he's dying 
but not the mm-hmm. other, that she forces him to really confront it. It's as if she's saying, if you're going to try to make yourself feel better as you die by telling the truth and making me deal with this now, well, then you're going to have to actually be totally honest with yeah. yourself and with me. And I'm going to have to hear all of it. And her line when she turns to him and says, I'm not through asking my questions. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the great lines and great line deliveries in the entire movie, I think. I think it speaks to the inquisitive nature of this movie and that idea of confronting truth, confronting the reality within the randomness and accepting certain narratives or abandoning certain accepted narratives. We see all these characters trying to carve out these new paths that seem to have been decided for them. So all those meta elements actually kind of swirl together, I think, in a really neat way. I'm so glad you brought up Melinda, Dylan, because I did remember that scene. I actually did not remember. I mean, it's really kind of the the most horrible secret of the film. So, sure. so it did stick with me, but I did not remember who played the wife. And I did not remember how good she was in that scene because the element you're right how you describe it but it 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 also is not like a got you like a courtroom sort of you're on the stand now you realize in her performance the little hesitation she has she could make that choice to still deny it that you're talking about but the courage it took for her to say he may die tonight but I am going to follow this through no matter what, how painful this is going to right. get. Um, and the courage that she brings to that, I think she probably has maybe three scenes in the film or four. Um, but that scene between them is just so absolutely wrenching and she's fantastic in it. Do you feel better now that you've said this? I don't know. Well, I'm not mad. Oh, I am, but I'm not, you know? I love you so much, Rose. I'm not through asking my questions. The other performances that I did want to talk about, you've touched on a lot of them. I, th- I think we covered what's so great about Riley. Philip Seymour Hoffman, you absolutely see why Paul Thomas Anderson was like, I'm eventually giving this guy his own movie or as close as you could yeah, with, the, with master, the master from what he does here. I feel like that line... This is that scene. I know this sounds silly, and I know that I might sound ridiculous, like this is the, the scene of the movie where the guy's trying to get a hold of the long-lost son, you know, but this is that scene. This is that scene. And I think they have those scenes in movies because they're true, you know, because they really happen. And you gotta believe me, this is really happening. It's, again, it's, it's PTA-like dancing like yes. just just like it's a little too little too much but if anybody but if you sell have it <laughs> philip seymour hoffman to say it okay it's gonna work and he pulls it off well for yeah sure. i just want to say he that, makes it something a real human would say yeah he does while also being idiosyncratic with every moment but not distractingly so anything that he says that's supposed to be remotely comic is a little funnier than that moment probably should be mm. or could have been with another actor and you talk about wrenching Every emotional beat is a little more heartbreaking than that moment could otherwise be, I think, because really the secret of it, I think, to the acting with Hoffman is that he's always serving the other character in the scene, whether it's Cruz, whether it's Robards, whether it's Julianne Moore and her history. You really see that in their interaction. really see it, yeah. right? He is just a character and an actor, ultimately, who's bursting with empathy. And as I said, not a surprise because we all know he's one of the best actors ever. And yet moment to moment – 
he constantly surprised me. You know what's interesting about him in, in the film is that a lot of these are uncomfortable characters. And even if you're interested in their stories and where they're going to go, when we return to them, you're a little bit on edge. Whenever it comes back to Phil, you feel like you're in good hands. Yeah. You're like, this is a this is a good place to be. Part of that is the occupation, this this nurse, but it's also the empathy that you talked about. So Cruz, I mean, you know, not surprising. It was probably the standout performance for me the first time I saw it. Watching it again, I like to think, and having seen 20 years of Tom Cruise performances since then, I like to think that on set, the the early version of Frank Mackey we get is that Cruz does like a less misogynistic version of that for himself to get himself pumped up for right. every scene he does. It's just <laughs> fantastic how he gets himself ramped up. And he's giving two performances here, right? There's is, that preening first half where we see him. Then also the bravado breaking down yes. during the interview that he mentioned. Um, but really the breakdown comes. He, he doesn't break down there. He, he kind of like shuts down there, right? That yeah. stare. And he just says, I'm sorry. Judging you. Yes. Wow. Yeah. But the real breakdown comes when he does, of course, finally meet his father who's on his deathbed. And again, Cruz using all his Cruz powers not to cry. Right. And saying that, right? I'm not going to let you make me cry. Even though as an actor, that's what the character requires. But you just knowing what sort of a performer Cruz is, how he's 110% all the time. Yes. You can see when he's gripping his hand and trying to prevent that. Yeah. How much he's giving there. I think not a surprise. You're right. And yet I did feel like he was even better than I remembered it. And I think it's because in 99, there was that element of, oh, we're watching Tom Cruise do something he's never done before. We're watching Tom Cruise play a vile character. And there was a performative aspect to it. And as you said, there is certainly a performative aspect to the character he's playing. He is playing a role, absolutely, as Frank T.J. Mackey. And he is a performer on stage for his sort of sycophantic fans who are buying his product. But it is a very textured performance and it's a very powerful performance and you touched on those silent moments it isn't just the blatant moments of misogyny and some of the exercises he does in his underwear that that all of that that the backward somersault right it it really is again (laughs) it speaks to the whole film it's those quieter moments and i do think that breakdown with robards and you nailed it that demand of himself to not cry but his body taking over in those moments and kind of almost forcing it out of him is really strong I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry for you. Mm. You sucker, I know you can hear me. I want you to know that I hate your guts. You can just die, you And I hope it hurts, I hope it hurts. Now, I'll throw at you, as I mentioned from your 99 take, not a fan of William H. Macy and Julianne Moore. I do think that Donnie's storyline overall is the weakest link in the film. Mm, I do feel like those bar scenes, anytime we go back Mm -hmm. to that bar, I felt as if I was ready. I was ready to go sooner than Paul Thomas Anderson was ready to go. I was ready to get back to some other characters, felt like it maybe meandered a little bit and definitely had some redundancy in terms of him articulating his his pain and his loneliness. That isn't to say, though, I don't think William H. Macy's really good in the film. I think it's exactly the type of performance we've seen from William H. Macy in a lot of great films. Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I cited those two performances, but I think it was more to suggest that the material was not serving them as well as it served the 
other characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I do agree. And maybe for me, partly it's also the obviously it's a film of coincidences, but having two quiz kids, a grown quiz kid and the young quiz kid was almost, you know, like a, too much of a doubling down on that sort of theme. And the one thing watching again that I did notice about both Moore and William H. Macy's scenes and Melora Walter's scenes has a bit of this. But as I said, I think she navigates them a little bit better. There's a lot of shouting back and forth with other people, whether it's the multiple lawyers that Julianne Moore's character goes to right. meet or Donnie with his bosses. It it speaks also to this element of um, this was a movie that you get the sense and it sounds like he said he wasn't going to cut a second out of. And those maybe have been the places, those heightened emotion shouting matches that those two characters get engaged in became a little bit redundant for me. But, yeah. I, you know, I would not go so far to say as they are bad performances. I don't think the material is up to the level there in those scenes that it is elsewhere. Well, I'll admit I'm not sure ultimately where I fall on Julianne Moore watching this film. And I would have said coming into it, oh, of course. I mean, I think she was nominated for an Oscar as well, along with Cruz, and she clearly has a great body of work behind her. I've enjoyed a lot of her performances, but there is a theatricality that goes beyond just a bigness and goes beyond just the yelling. There is something very pronounced and very forced about her performance that I don't feel in any other performance in the film. And you could point to the fact that she's a character who is becoming progressively unhinged and Mm -hmm. is also fueled by drugs. I think that's very clear. So the performance being a little bit scattered makes sense. And yet, like I said, it did overall stand out for me as one. I was never quite on the same plane with her when she was on screen. I mentioned surprises in terms of things you just didn't remember at all about the film. Did you have anything that stood out to you, a certain scene or an idea that wasn't something you recalled from your previous viewing? Well, do you want to talk about the frogs? I mean, we can. that's the biggest surprise in the film. Obviously, I knew it was coming, but uh, just, you know, I also had ahead of me and are the frogs going to make any sense this time or any more sense? And obviously, as you suggested, they are foreshadowed. We see that Exodus 8-2, you know, about the plague of the frogs in Egypt. We see a sign that just says Exodus 8-2, an audience member holding yes. at the game show and the, someone comes and takes it away. It's also, I think, foreshadowed in the boys' rap to Officer Jim on the street. I think the final line there is, when the sunshine don't work, the good Lord bring the rain in, Mm. um, which could obviously suggest the storm we see, but also maybe the the storm of frogs. There are chapter breaks, too, essentially, which I did remember that are all weather reports. So it suggests maybe not that frogs are going to fall from the sky, but the weather is getting worse. Yes. And And the movie's preoccupied with it. And weather something still... No matter whatever technological developments have come about, we yeah. cannot control. Can't right? read it, can't control it. It's the ultimate chaos. So yeah. I do think with the frogs, it's telling that the first person to experience it is Jim because he's maybe the only one in the film who who seems to believe in a providential God. Some of those moments where he's talking to himself are actually – one or two are actually prayers. Um, yep. So he seems to have this sense – cross behind him very yeah, yeah. pointedly. He seems to have a sense that there he believes there's someone guiding events, mm-hmm. right? Putting things in his path, giving him then the choice of what to do with what he comes across. So something more than just coincidence. Yeah. Um, and he I prays also, to God, too, to help him find his gun. Yes, that exactly. Moment. That's another one of the prayers. Also, it's interesting that the frogs precipitate Earl's death. That's, that's kind of what they lead up to. Um, we've been anticipating it the whole film, really. But yes. this is when it arrives and death, another maybe 
can be seen definitive act of God. So I think the bottom line is, you know, for me, the frogs are, they're sort of like man's songs that are sprinkled throughout. It's just another way to connect these characters in an exact moment with a singular experience, an absolutely singular experience. Yeah, and a singular unexplainable experience, which the whole movie is predicated on those types of experiences and this idea that something unbelievable, something miraculous can happen. And not only can it happen, it does happen. It happens to people every day. And I think one of the reasons I was so set up for it beyond the fact that I knew it was coming is the prologue, which was my big surprise. I had completely forgotten about Me too. Yep. Had completely forgotten about that opening sequence and the narration by Ricky Jay, who does appear in the film as kind of the executive producer or one of the producers of the game show. And it absolutely sets the table for everything that unfolds. It says, what you're about to watch defies rationality, it defies reason, but sometimes so does life, so buckle up. And so when you get frogs falling from the sky at the end of the movie, it's almost like we knew it was going to happen. Yeah, I think that's fair. But here we're getting to some of my critiques that I am going to say still stand. And it has to do with maybe the first 20 minutes of this film. Sam, I believe, used the phrase formal mastery in describing his revisit. And I just don't think, I think there are moments of that, but I don't think it's consistent throughout the film. And I don't think it has that formal mastery in these first 20 minutes. Um, I admire its brio. And maybe in 1999, like that's, I just never recovered from this sort of onslaught we get at the beginning. Like but I there, said, it could be overwhelming. It, yes. I can see that's, that. That's how I, I would describe the experience. Um, first, we do get the narrated prologue that you're talking about. So it whips us through these historical incidents of coincidence. The first one shot like a silent movie, right, with the aspect ratio, black and white, everything. And it's about a man being murdered in the neighborhood of Greenberry Hill by three men named Greenberry and Hill. Hill. Then we move to this story of a woman who fires a gun at her husband only to miss, shoot her son, who had just jumped to his death from the roof of their building and was passing by their window. And had loaded the gun. Yes. Okay. So this is like coming at... Fast and Furious past You us. forgot Patton Oswalt, too. Uh, yeah, the, the scuba diver. <laughs> the scuba right. diving aficionado. A surprise. Totally forgot about Patton Oswalt. Go ahead. Yeah. What was his well, he, experience? He likes to scuba dive, and he ends up getting picked up in one of those planes, I don't know the proper name, that picks water up to dump it on forest fires, and he got picked up with the water and dropped in a, a tree. tree and and died. And yes. then, of course, the other coincidence is that he actually had had an encounter, a kind of violent altercation or a skirmish with the guy who ultimately was flying the plane yes. at his blackjack table where he's a dealer a week or two prior or a few days prior. And then that pilot upon learning what happened kills himself. Kills himself. Okay. So which brings me to admire the brio again, but there's a sense of self-satisfaction to these all of these sequences here that I, I still find a little off-putting, and there's a flippancy and a glibness to it as well, especially when you think about the actual violence being recounted in these stories. So there's that element that's our first maybe eight minutes or whatever. Then we get this manic sequence introducing all of these characters, all of yeah. these people we've been talking about, and the filmmaking itself is just too much here. I still stick to that. It's, it's like he's coming into his powers, but is not fully in control of them. Think about the way I would describe it. It's like uh, Peter Parker going out to web sling for the first time, right? We've yeah. seen those scenes in how many Spider-Man right. movies. And you're awed at what he's doing and experiencing. But every once in a while, he hits a wall. Um, and and he's going to have to get up and try again. And this is where the the 
camera pushes really did start to bother me. I think half of the shots as we meet each of these characters, mm-hmm. again, maybe it's to develop consistency yeah, to connect them, is. but it pushes right in at a dramatic moment on the central figure. I also think there's an over-reliance on the first Amy Mann song we hear, one, um, to create a sense of montage that otherwise isn't really there in the actual filmmaking. If you look on it, we get those repeated push-ins, but the song is doing most of the work to create a montage out of this. So, again, like you're wowed at what's being attempted here, and 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 maybe that's enough. For most people, it I think was it enough. is enough. It yes, was enough for me. For you. But I think this movie, for me, Magnolia, gets really good once it settles down and stops trying to prove itself. And I think that happens eventually once we've met those other characters. We'll get like that showy single take through the TV production studio that maybe we right. didn't need to see every floor or room in the entire building. Impressively done. Impressively of staged. Course. But when Magnolia settles down, that's when it's closer to a masterwork. Magnolia is available on demand on most platforms and at your local library or who knows, a Blu-ray copy may just fall from the sky like it did for me, Josh. Hashtag but did it happen? If you agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. And if you missed any of our nine from 99 reviews from earlier this year, including The Matrix, Fight Club, Being John Malkovich, Eyes Wide Shut and others, you can find those at filmspotting.net slash nine from 99. Only one film left. Lots more to come. We're going to catch up with some recent releases, including Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit, plus Massacre Theater and our Contemporary Chinese Cinema Marathon Awards. Stay with us. You look like a perfect fit. plays, really plays. What I love about Charlie, he loves being a dad. He loves all the things you're supposed to hate, like waking up at night. She knows when to push me and when to leave me alone. He never lets other people keep him from what he wants to do. Dad, you're too far. I know. It's not easy for her to close a cabinet. He's incredibly neat. She's brave. He's brilliant. She's He's very, very competitive. competitive. You're listening to Film Spotting. So... That sounds like a really happy couple, and I hope things work out for them. Yikes. Scarlett Johansson, Adam Driver, in the trailer for Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. It's a movie about marriage. It's called Marriage Story. It's not called Divorce Story, so it must be happy, right? Spoilers, Adam. (laughs) I know that you and your wife, Debbie, are going to make this a date night. Well, this is tricky. I might do the same. But isn't it kind of dangerous, right? Of course it is. Depending where this movie goes... Who knows where the post-movie conversation Yeah, I was trying to talk Sarah into it just last night, and she read the description, and I wish I could remember what line it was, but there was some line where she said, well, maybe we shouldn't go watch this. That's the 
That's the problem. To be fair, Sarah is still suffering trauma from the lighthouse. The last date night when we took her to the lighthouse. Yes, I think Marriage Story might be an easier sit, but maybe it won't. It's playing in limited release this month before it premieres on Netflix in December. We are going to review it next week, and we're going to do a top five, which we haven't done in a little while. And right now we're in kind of a bad time of the season for it because we have all these awards type movies coming out and we're finally getting our screeners in the mail and we're trying to fill in everything that we've missed from the year but this was just too good of a top five to pass up and it is a top five we have done before though not you josh back in the halcyon days of film spotting before it was even called film spotting episode 28 so i think it was in that first year 2005 or early 06 sam and myself shared our top five movies about marriage and i'll share the titles when we get to that top five next week, but not a bad list for two neophyte critics. I think we did okay. Who had both been married at the? No, Sam wasn't yeah, even Sam married wasn't at even that point. Then. So. Why, why was he doing that list? Why would anybody <laughs> I listen love to that. him? <laughs> he did have some good picks, though. So he did have some good picks. We will get to those picks, and we will get to our new picks and hear from Josh next week. If you have a pick that you would like to share. Make sure we don't overlook a certain movie about marriage. Send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net, or you can leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You can also email us an audio file. And lastly, you can find us on Twitter at FilmSpotting or Larson on Film. You put out the bat signal for suggestions, and we have gotten a lot of them. A ton of them. A ton of good more, ones. More already. suggestions, I think, than any list we've put out in a long time. Yeah. So a lot of interest in this topic, and I think just a lot of great movies to pick from. For sure. We are looking forward to that. We also wanted to mention for our local Chicago area listeners that we often have advanced screening or run of engagement passes to give away. And this week, we have passes to give away for the latest from Trey Edwards Schultz. He's the writer-director who made The Golden Brick finalist, Cresha, and his last film was a very good film. It comes at night, and this movie, Waves, is one I am very eager to see. It's set in South Florida, another ensemble film, and according to the description, Josh, it traces the epic emotional journey of a suburban African-American family led by a well-intentioned but domineering father as they navigate love, forgiveness, and coming together in the aftermath of a loss. It sounds not too far removed from the movie we just talked about, Magnolia. That film opens in Chicago on November 22nd. The advanced screening is Tuesday night, November 19th. So if you would like to enter to win passes to see that for free before it opens, go to filmspotting.net slash events. Our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, has hit a pretty big milestone recently that we wanted to mention. Next Picture Show, of course, with Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky, and they are on episode 200. Yeah. It's, Talk to me when they hit 15 years. <laughs> all right. I think all of them have been doing quite a lot of work for a long time, Adam. So, <laughs> No, you know, it's fun to reflect back on that conversation, which I don't know how many years ago it would have been exactly, but talking with our producer, Sam, and then getting Genevieve on the phone and throwing out this idea to revive the kind of movie of the week format that they had over at The Dissolve, that great now yep. defunct, unfortunately, website and see if it worked as a podcast. And the fact that they've hit 200 episodes is really rewarding. I think I saw Scott post on Twitter, as a matter of fact, that Next Picture Show has actually lasted longer than the dissolve at this point. Huh. So, yeah, they've been doing this for a while. Now, episode 200 is part two of their Bong Joon-ho double feature. So part one was 2006's The Host and part two, they're discussing Parasite. So every two weeks, they pair a new movie with 
a classic. Next up is going to be Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit and Mel Brooks, the producers. I love it. A perfect one, right? New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts and get more information at nextpictureshow.net. We posed a new poll question last week over at our website looking ahead to Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. We wanted to know what you think is Tom Hanks' best performance as a real-life figure. There have been a few of them currently leading the pack. The one we both voted for, Josh, maybe we swayed a few people. Tom Hanks in Captain Phillips and Apollo 13 as Jim Lovell, the astronaut, not too far behind Hanks in Sully, Bridge of Spies, Charlie Wilson's War, The Post, and Saving Mr. Banks, all trailing. If you would like to vote in that poll, and we wish that you would, and leave a comment, you can do that over at filmspotting.net. It's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Still thinking of running, Jack? Think you can outrun the world? You know, the problem with being the last of anything, by and by there'll be none left at all. Sometimes things come back, mate. We live in proof, you and me. Aye, but that's a gamble of long odds, ain't it? There's never a guarantee of coming back. Passing on, that's dead certain. Summoning the brethren court, then, is it? I really hope that. That's a sad commentary in and of itself. The world used to be a bigger place. The world's still the same. It's just less in it. That was a much more intelligible Johnny Depp and Jeffrey Rush in 2007's Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. It was written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, directed by Gore Verbinski. That massacre was part of a show a couple weeks back when we had a review of The Lighthouse. So why Pirates of the Caribbean? Let's see what listeners came up with. James from Belleville, Illinois, writes in, Josh gave a passable impression of someone giving an okay impression of Jeffrey Rush's Captain Hector Barbosa. I do what I can. Adam, meanwhile, created a whole new tie-in by doing a drunk, non-native Chinese speaker <laughs> saying Jack Sparrow's lines in Chinese, thus connecting this scene to your contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. Well played, sir. As for the other tie-ins, the actors in both Pirates and The Lighthouse are giving huge piratey performances in their line readings, and Pirates came out in 2007, the same year as The Willem Dafoe starring Spider-Man 3, and of course, Dafoe is a star in The Lighthouse. Finally, in both cases, Josh is right. Mm. Why didn't we cut this part? Mm. Josh is right, as both films are actually good, quite good, I would argue, in parentheses, and not worthy of the negative reviews Adam gave. So I was mixed on The Lighthouse. I was not mixed on At World's End. I outright hated it, I'm well, pretty sure. I think James and I have a lot of company on The Lighthouse. We might be the only two who like At World's End, but I stand by it. It's like, at that point, the franchise had just given up telling any coherent <laughs> narrative, yeah. and it just became a surreal comedy. Well... There was a listener, at least one on my side, Josh, in this, Benji Kosa, mid-Hudson Valley, New York, said, this was an awful movie. I like the second one, though. <laughs> Fine. Sean Means from Salt Lake City, Utah, also wrote in, the obvious connection to this week's show is that Depp and Rush, like Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe in The Lighthouse, are portraying old-timey characters with scraggly facial hair in close proximity to the ocean. 
But how about this? Both Defoe and Pattinson have notably played vampires. Defoe got an Oscar nomination playing Max Shrek in Shadow of a Vampire, and Pattinson became a matinee idol as Edward Cullen in the Twilight franchise. While Depp is a this? member of Hollywood Vampires, the rock supergroup he formed with Alice Cooper. A little bit of a reach, but I love the knowledge being dropped there by Sean and all of our listeners. The connections we did have in mind and some we definitely did not. Thank you to everyone who entered. Not a very brimming hat. I'm going to take that as a sign that most people decided to skip at World's End, though I'm guessing its box office haul was several hundred million. I, I think if you had tried— Our listeners are more discerning. If you had tried English, Adam, we would have had a lot more entries. Maybe. Why don't you reach into that not-so-brimming film-spotting hat and pick out this week's winner? It's Willie Evans from Kansas City. Congratulations, Willie. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Do we go right into the sex? I need some film. Is that all right? You, you don't need a rehearsal? No, it's okay. I can do it. Okay. Yeah. Then we'll shoot the rehearsal. Okay. We move on to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, and we have a man and we have a woman. So we know who you're playing. You know I'm going to play the woman, but you especially know I'm going to play the woman because there is a version of this actor where I could do it really mumbly, and it would be really appropriate for this particular actor. Maybe not this character, yeah. but there's a lot of mumble, and that's yeah. a hint. <laughs> he knows how to mumble. In this actor. Is that what you're saying? Right. So <laughs> I, I don't want to just roll out the same bag of tricks here, oh, Josh. I'm I not see. a one-trick pony. Yeah. So I'm going to— Try something different. I'm going to do a little you accent You like a work. challenge. I do. I do want an acting challenge. So you're going to start the scene off. I'm going to give you the action. We will note that there is a word that appears twice that we decidedly did change to try yes. to make it a little less obvious. But I think this is one a lot of our listeners are going to know. I pretended to be this actor for much of my childhood. So, okay, so I've had a lot of practice. That's here. kind of another hint. A lot of practice. For longtime listeners. Mm -hmm. They may remember a certain top five we did where <laughs> oh, that's right. this character might have been invoked. <laughs> so you are going to start it and action. Fräulein Doctor, where is it? How did you get here? Where is it? I want it. You came back for the book? Why? My father didn't want it incinerated. Is that what you think of me? I believe in the frog. Not the swastika. You stood up to be counted with the enemy of everything that the frog stands for. Who gives a damn what you think? You do. All I have to do is squeeze. All I have to do is scream. And scene. That was a little bit too helpless there at the were, end. Helpless or were you, did you mean it to be seductive mm. as well? Were you, well, possibly. <laughs> that just comes out. Possibly. I think it was your line readings that brought it out of me. Very, very gritty. Thank very you. manly. Yeah. Okay. I, I sound much closer to him now than I did then. Yes, I would probably <laughs> think that's fair. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, December 2nd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. After 9-11, everyone was scared. Scared it might happen again. It was my second day of grad school. Next day, I changed all my classes to national security. Morning, Dan. Morning, Senator. Have you seen the story today in the New York Times? Evidently, the CIA destroyed tapes of interrogations of Al-Qaeda detainees. I want to find out what was on the tapes and why they were destroyed. 
We've got three more titles to talk about, two recent releases and one that is actually opening in select cities this weekend. You just heard a clip from it. It's the report starring Adam Driver as a Senate staffer named Daniel Jones, who was tasked with the job of writing the definitive account of the CIA's use of torture techniques on suspected terrorists in the wake of the 9-11 attack. It is directed by Scott Z. Burns, and it's been a bad week for me and Scott Z. Burns, Josh, because he's a writer who has definitely done some films I appreciate, including the screenplay for The Bourne Ultimatum and the Steven Soderbergh film Side Effects, which I love. He also wrote the screenplay for Soderbergh's Contagion, and he worked with him on the Informant, which is a movie that I was mixed on and so many people I trust love it that I just assume I got it wrong. Yeah. And if I revisit it, I will love I, the film. I will concur with that. OK, but I watched his latest with Soderbergh a few days prior to seeing the report, The Laundromat, available on Netflix. And Soderbergh has kind of become our chronicler of corrupt systems. And in this case, the corrupt system is capitalism. Basically, Antonio Banderas is in it, Gary Oldman, Meryl Streep, Jeffrey Wright. I'll say, Josh, about the laundromat. I can't recommend that you devote the time to it here at the end of the movie year. But it has an ending with Streep that we could probably devote an entire episode to. It falls under the category of being completely fascinating and provocative. But I'm not sure it's necessarily good. Okay. We'll have to dive into that perhaps at another time. But that movie is about the intricacies of shell companies and insurance fraud. And it's all true or as true as a movie can be. And it's just so heavy handed. And the lighter stuff falls so flat that actually it's my lowest ranked Soderbergh movie. Wow. On my letterbox list, I have it in last place. And it's not terrible. I didn't hate it. I like a lot of Soderbergh's work. But it is at the bottom. And then I come into the report and I should love it. It's an update on All the President's Men, basically. One of my favorite movies ever set in Washington, D.C., obviously. Driver's character is a journalist, but he's an investigator working for Senator Dianne Feinstein. And as I said, he's writing the definitive report on the U.S. government's approach to torture post 9-11. It's very much a procedural. We watch him piece by piece filling in every detail of this story. And it completely issues any sense of who Daniel Jones is as a person, similar to all the president's men where we just see them as working journalists Mm -hmm. pretty much the whole time. And Burns has a really daunting task for himself. How do you make spending five years locked in a basement reading memos and writing multiple thousand page summaries of that dramatic? He doesn't crack it. Unfortunately, it's a very well-meaning two hours, a very at times troubling and important two hours. But you spend most of it watching words being highlighted on a computer screen, intercut with brutal depictions of the torture that's being researched with occasional briefs making sense of it all to a senator and her staff member. The senator here is played by Annette Benning. I just found it incredibly tedious with good guys who are clearly good guys and bad guys who are clearly bad guys. And the people in the middle, a lot of these CIA folks who are doing really bad things, but with good intentions, aren't really people at all. They're just kind of there to push the plot along. And for a movie that takes this kind of clinical approach, it's definitely skeptical, if not cynical, about how politics commingle with the truth and obfuscate the truth. And Driver's character is someone who does clearly get emotionally involved 
in his investigation, but for the most part is dispassionately analyzing what the government did. His rationality and his thoroughness are what make him a compelling character and the right person for this job. When we get the swelling strings at the end of the movie underlining the oratory coming from the floor of the Senate, it just feels so false. But right now, not a ton of reviews in. 86 on Rotten Tomatoes, 74 on Metacritic. Maybe this is yet another Scott Z. Burns film. I got wrong, Josh. Well, you didn't make it sound too compelling. I'll, no. I'll tell you that, which is unfortunate, but you're right. This is and this is catch-up season. See as much as you can season. So maybe I will move uh, both this and the laundromat further down the line. Here's Marshal Jojo. You're our top man. Prepare to leave the house. Today you boys will be involved in such activities as war games, ah! ambush techniques, and blowing stuff up. I don't think I can do this. Russ? Of course you can. Yes, we're finally getting to Jojo Rabbit, Adam. This strange little movie we've been wondering about for a long time now. Uh, written by, directed by Taika Waititi, who also stars as none other than Hitler himself. Basically, this is the story. Jojo uh, is a 10-year-old boy played by the really criminally cute Roman Griffin Davis, um, who lives in a small town in Germany in the waning days of World War II. And he's so convinced of Nazi propaganda that his imaginary friend is Hitler himself, played by Waititi. Uh, When Jojo discovers that his mother, Rosie, who is played by Scarlett Johansson, is hiding a Jewish teen in their attic, Thomasin McKenzie there, who's very excellent, maybe recognize her from Leave No Trace. Well, then he's forced to consider basically if this ideology that he swallowed makes any sense if actual human beings are involved. Now, Adam, I'm going to make a prediction okay. that I hope isn't true. I'm going to guess that this probably didn't work for you. And I'm going to also add, I'm such a nice guy on this show. I, I apologized about Magnolia. I'm also going to add that If that's the case, you could very well be right. (laughs) This might not be that great of a movie. This might be making some missteps. This might look very awkward years down the road. But right now in November 2019, I don't care. Um, I had such – a good time is not the right phrase to use watching this. But Mm -hmm. with a full packed theater, it was so invigorating to watch Jojo Rabbit because – This irreverently comic middle finger to idiotic tribalism, which is essentially what this movie is, whether or not it's the right time for that, uh, it was for me. Mm -hmm. It just felt perfect and good and thrilling. Um, Where are you at? Well, saying that it makes a few missteps is probably accurate, and I'm not sure that it's going to be a great movie a few years down the road. I'm not sure it's a great movie now. I do think it's a good enough movie. Oh, and good. I was entertained nice. by Jojo Rabbit and charmed enough by it, certainly. And actually, I was really struck, Josh, by the number of people I saw on Twitter and on Letterboxd, some responding to you and your glowing take on the film, who not only disliked the movie, but loathed the film. Oh, yeah. Right. That's out there. Those sprinkled in comments of worst film of the year. Yeah. Maybe my biggest criticism of it is that I'm confused how a comedy and how a movie with this provocative a setup with Adolf Hitler as his imaginary friend could be as harmless as this movie ultimately really is. I'm Mm. mystified about what 
got people so riled up to have that harsh response to it. Maybe you can help enlighten me. For me, my issues with it are mainly about the storytelling, where you've got a film that is absolutely absurd and fantastic, but it is grounded in this harsh reality that, for me, never quite felt harsh enough or real enough. And Scarlett Mm -hmm. Johansson plays his mother. Without spoiling any of the details, I'll just say that her absence or the infrequency with which we see her for a lot of the film and her actions and the actions we learn about later never really felt totally thought through to me. And I think if that had a little more structure to it and a little bit more power to it, this is a film that I think you use the word in something you wrote about it feeling like a a prank, but in the best sense. And I think it, it could have risen above the prank level to legit really powerful satire. I don't think it fully gets there, but I do think Johansson in particular is very good. And she has one scene with Jojo that is frightening and it's funny and it's heart wrenching at the same time. I think it's a microcosm for this movie when it's at its best. It's the one where she pretends. Don't talk about it. I won't. I'll just say that because that may be my most moving moment when we get down to our rap party awards. I wondered if that was a potential candidate for I think it works the rap party. so well. Yeah, it, it does because it's all of those things. Yes. And it doesn't squeeze any sentimentality out of it at all. So I did really love that scene. And I do love Thomas and Mackenzie. I think she's perfect. I think she's playful and fun. But also you are always aware of the stakes surrounding her character. But I think what really carries this movie is Roman Griffin Davis as Jojo. He is such a treat. How many line readings in this movie work because of his delivery. Mm-hmm. And he's precocious, but it never feels overly precious. I just felt like he always had the right tone, this mixture of self-awareness and complete childishness. Yeah. YTD is, you know, obviously uh, the actor is very talented, Griffin Davis himself, but YTD has shown that he's got a real knack for working with child actors as well and something like Hunt for the Wilder People mm-hmm. too. Um, yeah. For the, you know, the only, I haven't really delved in and certainly did not want to get any online arguments about why people hate this movie so strongly. I have read a few other reviews and listened to some podcasts uh, where people didn't like it as much. And one thing that has come up that I really just don't see um, is this accusation of it being not in control or precise or really knowing what it wants to do. And I just want to highlight a couple of examples where I think this this movie is very intentional where where the um you know the visual gags are amusing but also incredibly pointed and think about that scene where jojo is tasked with putting up posters mm-hmm. of hitler's face around town and we get this gag where he he pushes them and wipes them to get them to stick to the wall and each time his hand goes by hitler's face which is waititi's face yeah, his friend's face his friend's face pulls a different goofy expression right so it's like a cartoon effect but then the last time his hand goes by it changes to the real Hitler. And it's the actual face from a propaganda poster, a historical propaganda poster. And I think bits like that, um, you laugh, but they also give you pause. And that's where this movie does hit the right tone for me because it keeps the giggles from frittering into this frivolousness. Mm -hmm. Um, And and right off the bat, it has this sensibility to it. The great 
opening sequence of the Fantastic. Beatles singing I Want to Hold yeah. Your Hand in German. Another rap party candidate for oh, best opening, opening scene. For sure. And what do we get? Over this are archival images of ecstatic crowds at Nazi parties. Yeah. So it's this wild combination of pop fanaticism yes. and fanaticism of a darker kind. It's striking that same balance. And I really think Waititi does, does the same thing with his performance. He's mostly goofy. He mostly portrays this historical monster as, um, you know, this petulant, insecure child, which I think many of us in America right now can recognize and see in another figure. And he then shifts two instances where he's a goofball and we're meant to laugh at him. And Waititi shifts into, I don't even want to call it a Hitler impression, but it's basically he he gets angry yes. and vitriolic. Yes. And it's the Hitler we've seen, again, in archival footage of rallies and speeches. And then you laugh, but then you stop because you realize that this is the the man and the yes. the language that has swayed a nation. That's the man in the poster. That's yeah. the man in the poster. And I'm sorry, it feels like this country is swayed in similar ways right now. And so when you go to a theater and you have a crowd, again, around you that is both laughing at the silliness of it and reckoning with the seriousness of it, it it feels like, you know, a, a small experience of resistance. And that's why it's valuable now. I, again, I, I might look back on this in a couple of years and say, eh, feels a little off. It feels a little off in 2027, mm. but I'll worry about that then. One more movie to get to that I had a chance to see, Josh. It's currently on Netflix. It is The King from director David Michaud. If you recall, my number one question of the fall movie season was about this movie. I asked, will The King be my favorite movie of all time or merely my favorite movie of 2019? And then I had a bunch of sub-questions attached to it, including how badly will Robert Pattinson's Prince Dauphin outshine Timothy Chalamet playing the Prince Hal who becomes Henry V character. What about Joel Edgerton playing Falstaff? Seems like an odd choice for that character. And would this be for me a return to form for Michaud? I've been less than enamored with his last two films, War Machine and The Rover, after his great debut, Animal Kingdom. And the joke of that question, of course, is a reference to the fact that I am a huge fan of all things Henry V, probably my favorite Shakespeare play, and have always loved the Kenneth Branagh adaptation from 1989. And I'll say this, it's not my favorite movie of all time. But it is among my favorite movies of the year. It's not mm. going to be number one okay. by any stretch, but it is among my favorites. And it's interesting that it follows War Machine. As I said, a movie I didn't love and you were pretty mixed on it as well. But it is his second film in a row now that is very explicitly about war. I do want to talk about Pattinson for a second. He certainly steals every scene that he's in as the Dauphin. He is just delightfully prissy with his French accent and his demeanor, but without resorting to cheap theatrics. He's really fun in all of his scenes. And you know what? Edgerton as Falstaff really works. To steer our present course, I've been forced to rely upon the counsel of men whose loyalty I question every waking moment. Every waking moment. I need men around me I can trust. I'm here because you are my friend. <laughs> A king has no friends. A king has only followers. 
He's much more subdued. Yeah, that was my biggest question. Way more subdued, more melancholy than jolly, which is what we're used to with that character. But I think it works because it fits within the larger scheme of the movie. And here's where I have to be really vague, unfortunately, because I'm honestly dying to talk about this movie with someone who's not only seen the movie, for starters, but who has some affection for the source material as I do, whether it's Henry V or Henry IV parts one and two, which are touched on here in The King, because what's most successful about this movie for me is the way it interprets and deviates from the source. And as I said, I just don't want to get into that. I don't want to spoil that surprise for anyone as they watch this film, but I'll focus on one aspect, and it's Chalamet as King Henry. Laurence Olivier was 37 playing Henry V. Branagh was 29, close to what Henry really was when he ascended to the throne, 27. But the whole play is about his youth and about his immaturity and perhaps his unreadiness to be king. He is this prodigal son who has spent his entire adolescent years drinking in the bars with all of these miscreants like Falstaff and his buddies. And now he's assuming the throne. And Chalamet, at 23, gets much closer to, I think, the king that's at least hinted at in Shakespeare. And he certainly captures the impetuousness of that character coming to the throne. And there's a scene where he is meeting the French king finally face to face. And he's in a position of power. Henry is in the scene. And the way Chalamet is propped forward in his chair a little bit awkwardly, very forced, and he's got this scowl on his face. And in the moment, all I could think about was how much of a punk Chalamet <laughs> looked like and how much he seemed to be trying. He was just trying so hard to be regal and in command. And of course, in that moment, that's when the light bulb went off, that that's kind of the entire point of this character. He is trying too hard and is being too forced about it in that moment. And we could talk a lot more about Michaud's choices, including how he depicts war itself. But I will save it until maybe more people catch up with this movie, which is available now on Netflix and maybe as well for our top 10 films of the year talk, because at least right now, a lot left to see. But right now, it's got a shot. Okay. And to bring things full circle, I was looking up the running time. Um Another, Two hours and 20 minutes, but kind of long one. Nowhere near the overindulgence three hour, eight minute Magnolia. No. I think I could fit this in. Hearing one of the most famous Chinese movie themes there, Wong Fei Hung theme, we learned that from Sean Gilman, who has been the curator of our recently finished contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. Looking back at four films that Sean thinks and many others think are among the best Chinese films of the 2010s. And Josh, we have a little bit of unfinished business as we did share our final review, Ashes Purest White, Jia Zhanka, the filmmaker, a movie from this year, from 2019, but we haven't shared our awards, which is how we like to close out all of our marathons. We are calling these The Umbrellas, a great suggestion, I believe from Sean, actually, who pointed out that the Hong Kong protesters, there have been articles written about how during their recent demonstrations, their best weapon has turned out to be The Umbrella. 
and it's become a symbol. And we thought that made sense with all of the political content in these four films. Yeah, I think for sure it's been an undercurrent to one degree or another in the films we've looked at. Aside from Ash is Purest White, we reviewed 2017's Our Time Will Come. That was directed by Anne Hui. We also looked at 2014's The Midnight After from Fruit Chan, and the marathon began with 2010's Let the Bullets Fly, which was directed by and also starred Jean Wen. We are going to share winners of five categories, Best Supporting Performance, Lead Performance, Best Genre Disruption Scene, which we can talk a little bit more about when we get to that category. Finally, Best Scene and Best picture. We're going to get through these pretty quickly, and we're going to hear from Sean and his picks in a bit. But we do want to start with Best Supporting Performance and hear from our marathon companion, the professor who helps us with all of our setups to our various marathon films, Nathaniel Myers in South Bend, Indiana. My Supporting Actor Award goes to Dini Ip as Mrs. Fong, mother to resistance fighter Fang Gu in Our Time Will Come. She's a character that is, at any given moment, concerned, even anxious by the circumstances she finds herself in, a little thrilled by the challenges that they present to her, matter of fact about the roles she must play within them, and then stoically accepting of the hand she's dealt by them. And Dini Ip imbues each moment with, at first, a quirky charm, and by film's end, a quiet grace. Nathaniel gives his umbrella for Best Supporting Performance to Dini Ip from Our Time Will Come. Josh, to recap the nominees, or I think the likeliest candidates for this award, we have three choices, I think, from Let the Bullets Fly. You have Chow Yun-Fat as Master Wang, the villain, and I'm sure we're going to get some of these names wrong, so we're going to apologize in advance, but Ma Bangda, the kind of goofy conciliary to our main character, to Pocky, played by Yu Gi, and Karina Lau as Mrs. Ma, his wife. You could, of course, pick any ensemble member from The Midnight After, I suppose, not really a lead actor there. And then three choices from our time will come. In addition to Dini Yip as Mrs. Fong, you have Wallace Huo as Lee Gamwing and Eddie Ping as Blackie Lau. Finally, I think you have to consider Liao Fan as Bin from Ashes Purest White, the boyfriend in that film. Did you also go with Dini Ip or another candidate, Josh? You know, from all those choices, I did go with Dini Ip as well. I think this is a character I don't think we spent a lot of time on in our we didn't. review, but it's a performance that stuck with me in the aftermath, I think because of the trajectory that she takes. Um, initially disapproving of her daughter's anti-Japanese activities. I even wondered, I think I mentioned her when I wondered if she was a collaborator with the Japanese at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the years go on and her daughter's commitment to the cause becomes strong, She does begin to come around and almost too much. You know, it's her trying to get involved that causes the events, the things to go badly and eventually where she does ultimately sacrifice herself for the cause. So she begins as somewhat of a suspicious figure and then it uh, transforms her into a tragic one. Uh, in our time will come. I did see in a note that Sean left um, back when he gave us some background for our time will come about Dini Ip. He said that she is from Hong Kong, where she's been an acclaimed actress and singer since the 1980s. Sean said she has long been an outspoken supporter of Hong Kong's pro-democracy protests. So we talked briefly about the Japanese occupation as depicted in our time will come as maybe being possibly some sort of stand-in for the political situation that Hong Kong is currently facing. Maybe that's something that drew Ip to the project. But yeah, she's my choice alongside Nathaniel for Best Supporting Performance. Yeah, she's a good choice, and I think she's probably the right answer. And yet I'm going to diverge and go with Eddie Ping 
from the same movie, Our Time Will Come. He plays Blackie Lau. He doesn't offer the chance to hit as many notes as Dini Ip gets. He's such fun, he, though. Yeah, he's more of a prototypical action hero, but he is fun, and he plays him with wit and sensitivity. And you'll recall from our review of that film, I said I wouldn't have minded seeing a movie that just focused on the daughter's transformation into a rebel. And we kind of get that, but I mean that actual part that basically we just skip past where it's now a few years later and she's been in the resistance for a while. I would similarly like to watch a version of Our Time Will Come that was just all about Blackie Lau, right? Just follow his character and his exploits. And he might be the number one character or the number one actor from this marathon. And if not the number one, certainly in the top two or three, who I would love to see more work from. Mm. If I knew nothing else about these films, except that they were from China and he was the star of them, I really want to see more of his work. Uh, That sort of thinking influenced my best actor choice. Okay. We'll get to that. Let's go ahead and get to best lead performance. Then I'll share the top candidates here. We started with a great male lead performance and then closed with two great female performances in this marathon. You have to talk about Jiang Wen as Paki Zhang from Let the Bullets Fly. You could go with Zhao Shun, who is Fong Lan from Our Time Will Come, the heroine of that story, or Tao Zhao, who is the star of Ash is Purest White. I think those are really the top candidates, Josh. Let's go ahead and hear who Nathaniel chose. After finishing Our Time Will Come, I was nearly certain Zhu Shan as Fang Gu was going to take this prize. But then Ash's Purest White came along, and I can't deny Zhao Tao the prize she so rightly deserves. Her character's circumstances change radically throughout the film, and even as she's asked to respond in many different, complex ways, Zhao gives the character an internal consistency, offering a commanding performance through dynamic but subtle gesture an outstretched arm, a turned back, a hungry, determined gaze. So I think it's completely understandable and probably smarter to go with one of the two female leads this series has given us, as Nathaniel did. But I just can't resist the uh, the puckish prankster, the Robin Hood-esque I bandit. I almost went there. That Zhang Wen gives so us tough. Uh, in Let the Bullets Fly, the movie he also directed. He's he's goofy and regal. He's chivalrous and dangerous. Uh, Pucky Zhang is – he's this blithe spirit uh, and also the strange conscience uh, of this really wild action comedy. So I guess it goes back to your thinking you mentioned earlier, Adam. For me, if there is a performer after this marathon whose work I'd want to check out more of, it is Jean Wen. And I know, you know, I realize I've seen him in Rogue One, a very small part there, but I'd really like to see other things that he's done, specifically in front of the camera as a performer. No, I'm with you. He's certainly my runner-up, but I did have to fall in line here and go with Tao Zhao. You see her go from someone who's so confident and seemingly in control to total vulnerability without ever being a pathetic character at all. And she doesn't get to charm us the way that Jiang Wen can, but she does just exist in front of the camera and in almost every frame of Ash's Purest White. Our next umbrella category is genre disruption moment. And if you look at the four films we watched, all similar in some ways, stylistically or thematically divergent along those lines as well, but very different kind of films from kind of a horror thriller in The Midnight After, which also has a sci-fi element to it, to the period war drama of Our Time Will Come, to the modern day, very intimate personal drama of Ashes Purest White and Let the Bullets Fly is just a cartoon action movie, basically. And within those films, they all have 
their share of moments or scenes that take us out of whatever genre the movie seems to be existing in and offer something new. Is that a decent explanation of this category? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the common thread. If there is one among these films is how they're each surprisingly uncommon as they go along and are able to shift and move in different directions within the context of their main story. So let's hear Nathaniel's choice. I'm going to go with an early scene from Fruit Chan's The Midnight After, perhaps the most genre-disruptive film in the series. It's the scene that takes place soon after the group comes through the tunnel, and the characters begin to realize the city is empty and they're all alone. I'm not quite sure exactly what the genre calculus is here. Have we turned to horror, sci-fi, postmodern expressionism? But that ambiguity seems to be the point, and it's the most unsettling of the film's many ambiguous turns. It made me think not of Major Tom, but of Mr. Jones. We know something is happening here, but we don't know what it is. And how incredibly unsettling and resonant is that? Probably my favorite moment, my favorite sequence from The Midnight After. Uh, So a good pick there from Nathaniel. I'm going back to Let the Bullets Fly. And I'm going to call it the Battle of the Masks. I described already Let the Bullets Fly as an action comedy, um, which is already something of a genre mashup. But then you get a historical drama, sort of, and a political satire in some ways. And all of this comes together in a scene that we did highlight in our review, what I call there a face-off as farce. This is when Paki Zhang's, the main character's men, they don these bandit masks, brown sacks with red circles on them. To cause confusion during this showdown they're about to have with the town's gangsters. And it turns out the gangsters had the same plan and they show up wearing the same mask. So what's set up as this grand, almost wuxia style action sequence suddenly becomes an anarchic comic set piece. And I think that only adds to the movie's satire about the corruption and the ineptitude mm-hmm. of those trying to run this town. So my genre disruption pick is the Battle of the Masks from Let the Bullets Fly. Yeah, I love that scene. A couple scenes I considered. One from the midnight after the entire space oddity sequence is its own fantastic odyssey. The taxi driver going to work and all the documentary footage that we get in our time will come that is interspersed throughout but feels like it's from a completely different movie. And I do think the choice we're going to hear from Nathaniel in a moment for his favorite scene from the marathon, spoiler, from Ashes Purest White, I think could qualify for this category as well. But for me, it's Another moment from Let the Bullets Fly, a much quieter moment, and that's why ultimately I picked it. It's when father and son talk about Mozart. It's a scene right before the son is later killed and then or kills himself but is driven to kill himself by this whole kangaroo court. And the members of Pocky's gang and Pocky himself vow to avenge him. But they have this quiet little scene fairly early into the movie after they've gotten to town and Pocky has established himself as this fake governor. And they talk about his schooling and they play Mozart on a record player, a gramophone. And his son, clearly his adopted son, has a lot to learn. And he tells of his plans to send him off to school and where he's going to study in the different regions for a certain period of time. And it's just this wonderfully quiet father-son moment that really makes the moment where the son dies truly feel tragic in a movie, as we've said, that is otherwise pretty cartoonish. So you have all this action adventure and you have this violence and you have all this comic violence in the movie and all the scheming and double crossing and you never really take anyone at their word throughout the entire film. And when you watch these two really be open and honest 
with each other. It really has a power to it. So that's my pick from Let the Bullets Fly. We close with two more categories, our favorite scene or moment from the marathon. I already said Nathaniel was going to choose something from Ash's Purest White. Let's find out which scene it was. For best scene, my gut tells me to pull a Kempinar cheat and name a couple scenes from Ash's Purest White, since isolating any one takes away what gives the film about time passing its power. Nevertheless, so as to not devalue the sanctity of these awards, I'll simply say that the assault of Bin, with its infrequent but judicious edits and alternating shaky and gliding camera, ending on a seemingly interminable power pose from Zhao Tao, releases an energy that both Zhejanka and Zhao seem to be carrying in more muted ways throughout the rest of the film, and the scene was totally breathtaking for it. I am back in lockstep with Nathaniel here. Yeah, saving Bin's life from Ash's purest white is my best scene. Uh, this is before the movie downshifts into its somber, meditative Antonioni phase. There is this bravura action scene, and I like that a single take is also involved. Mm-hmm. Very impressive one. Um, then we get this brilliantly choreographed fight scene punctuated by that moment Nathaniel mentioned um, of Chiao pulling a gun out and firing it in the air when Bin's life is threatened. So the whole sequence is pretty thrilling in its own right, but it also captures, I think, how these two at this moment are perfectly in simpatico, you know, and that's that's the sort of synergy that they will lose and then will struggle to regain in the film's latter half. So really seeing it in action here um, sets up where the movie eventually goes. Yeah, and where they eventually go is where I'm going with my favorite scene. It's also from Ashes Purest White, and it's also a single take, but it's the moment where we now see that they aren't simpatico. In fact, they're completely disconnected from each other after she has gotten out of jail, where she has served for five years, and he has moved on without her. And she needs this moment of reckoning. She needs this moment of confrontation with him. And they go to a motel room. It's that motel room reunion. I didn't have a chance to rewatch it or find that scene again. I don't know how long it goes on. I'm pretty sure it is a single take and it must last at least five to 10 minutes. That scene, just those two in dialogue with each other in a lot of somber silence. And despite that single take, it certainly isn't a bravura or ostentatious scene, but it is my most memorable scene from the entire marathon, I think just because of that moment of disconnection between those two characters. Let's give out the final Umbrella Award then, Josh. What was your favorite movie of the marathon? We'll hear from Nathaniel first. I have to give my best picture umbrella to Ash's Purest White for her performance, for his direction, for its evocation of the non-cathartic feeling of time marching on, and for its story about the ways we change and don't change with that time. Speaking for myself, as I continue to venture beyond this marathon into the world of contemporary Chinese cinema, I'm fairly certain my next steps will be to seek out the further collaborations of Zhao Tao and her husband, Jia Zhangke. So thanks, guys, for another great marathon, and thanks especially to Sean for his terrific curation, not only in his choice of films, but also in his brilliant and incredibly helpful elucidations of them. The excellence of this marathon is really a credit to you all. Well, thanks, Nathaniel. Good to have you along as well and to hear your picks here. For these awards, I'm with you. You're making smart picks. I'm with you with Ash's Purest White. Uh, I kind of hesitated to do this because in some ways I feel this is the most Western film 
of the marathon. I mean, I've already mentioned the Antonioni influence, but I think it's very much in the mode of the European art film in general, especially in its lack of payoff or resolution. So in some ways, Our Time Will Come or The Midnight After or Let the Bolts Fly might be more authentic picks for this marathon, whatever that means. Um, But honestly, not only was Ash my most rewarding viewing experience, it's also the one that has stuck with me. The most, just the way it's haunting in its form, those gorgeous compositions of lonely figures against vast landscapes, um, and really provocative in its depiction of this massive country that it, that has experienced huge social and economic changes in the last two decades. One of the reasons we chose to do this marathon now was to widen our net for titles that we want to consider when trying to determine the best films of the 2010s. I have a massive master list in the works over at Letterboxd and Ashes Purest White. That's the one from this marathon that's going on it. So it had to be my best picture pick. Yeah, definitely a good choice. And another case where it's probably the right choice. But Sean, our curator, is going to go a different direction, Josh. And we haven't heard his choices yet, but we're going to give him, if not the final word, the penultimate word here and hear all of his Umbrella Award winners. Hello, Adam and Josh. Here are my picks for Contemporary Chinese Cinema Marathon Award winners. For supporting performance, I'm going with Dini Ip in Our Time Will Come. She plays the Josen's mother. Uh, It's just a wonderfully nuanced and humane performance. For lead performance, I'm going with Zhao Tao in Ash's Purest White. I think it's uh, it's pretty much the obvious pick. She's just phenomenal, and she's in pretty much every scene in the movie, and she just absolutely dominates it. For genre reception moment, I'm going with the ending of Let the Bullets Fly, when what had been a battle of wits between two exceptional men in Jiang Wen and Chaiyan Fat turns into a kind of revolution as Jiang convinces the people that they have already won, and thus they gather together and overthrow the, the villains that had been dominating their town. It's a really clever subversion of the kind of John Woo action movie template. Uh, my favorite scene uh, is a tough one, but I'm going with the the concert right in the middle of Ash's Purest White, where Zhao Tao is is watching a, a pop singer and gradually becomes. Uh, taken up with the song and begins singing it along. Uh, it comes right after her lowest point in the film when she and her her boyfriend have broken up and it just kind of reinvigorates her and it's just a, a really lovely, lovely scene. And for best picture is another tough call. Uh, both Atchis Pierce White and The Midnight After are among my top 10 films of the decade. And, and obviously I love all four of these films, but for picture I'm giving the award to The Midnight After, which to me is just the defining movie of the 2010s for a bunch of reasons, which you guys touched on in your review. And yeah, uh, I want to thank you guys for doing this marathon. It's been a lot of fun to follow along, and I hope that you and your audience take this as uh, an introduction to Chinese cinema, not a definitive, these are the only four movies worth seeing, because there's a lot of great stuff out there. Thanks. So a lot of crossover there with Sean, obviously, best supporting performance, best lead performance, and a scene from Ashes Pierce White as best scene. But going with The Midnight After for best picture, and I have to say, Josh, oddly enough, I'm with him. I think this points out potentially, one, the limitations of star ratings, or my limitations as a critic and my hypocrisy as a critic, or both. It could also speak to the notion of sometimes having a different idea of what constitutes a best film 
versus a favorite film or a better film versus one that you enjoyed more or had a different type of experience with. And I think Ashes Pure as White is probably the best film of the marathon, but the most thrilled I was during this marathon was during that first half of The Midnight After. And if I had to recommend one movie from the marathon to represent the whole marathon to someone, it would be my pick. I think because of that very pointed political commentary in it, because of the mixing of genres for sure, but I did rate the movie overall a little bit lower than Ash Spirus White and Let the Bullets Fly, actually. But for me, it was really the singular experience of the entire marathon. So split decision, two for Ashes, Pierce White, two for The Midnight After. We'll have to hear from listeners who have followed us along and see where their votes go for Best Picture. Yeah, absolutely. We would love to hear any of your comments on the marathon and your picks. Feedback at filmspotting.net. If you want to get caught up on the marathon or just review our choices, the best way to do that is to go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. And when you go to the Contemporary Chinese Cinema Marathon page, You will not only see all of our picks and links to all of those reviews, but more from Sean Gilman, not only his notes that he provided on all of these films that helped us contextualize them, but I also put a link to his 113 top films from China of the decade. And if you need a little bit of guidance, if you've watched some of these movies, you've followed along in the marathon and you thought, okay, I want to see more, but I'm overwhelmed by the idea of 113 of them. He has eight more, the next eight that he would recommend you watch. You will find those as well. If you go to filmspotting.net slash marathons, and we will mention that all of those movies are available to watch on demand. We don't know what our next marathon will be. We know it will come sometime after the first of the year, but we are open to any suggestions. That email, as always, feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that is our show. Almost two shows. Packed a lot in. If you want some more, though, go to the show archives at filmspotting.net, where you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. Also at the website, you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking, what is Tom Hanks' best performances based on a real-life figure? To order film spotting t-shirts or other film spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. We are on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at filmspotting. You can find me at Larson on Film. Out in wide release this weekend, Ford versus Ferrari, Bale and Damon in that film. Charlie's Angels, directed by Elizabeth Banks, starring Kay Stew herself, Kristen Stewart, and The Good Liar, starring Helen Mirren and Ian McKellen. Out in limited release, including opening here in Chicago, is The Report, starring Adam Driver, and Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, also starring Driver and Scarlett Johansson. That's the film we're going to talk about on next week's show as we share our top five movies about marriage. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener-supported. 
Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.